Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. China blinks, Russia threatens, and Democrats seal the deal in Georgia. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on the search for growth in China and in the United States. We're going to be seeing probably the uh, biggest set of policy experiments uh, that we've seen in China in decades. And Jeff Blau of Related on why the market for upscale office space is hot. You look at new modern buildings with the right features, the right amenities, and the demand for those buildings is tremendous. Wall Street saw a week of confrontation as Democrat Raphael Warnock's face down Republican Herschel Walker in yet another runoff election in Georgia and came out the winner. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. Ukraine continued its bloody confrontation with Russia, using drones to strike bases inside of Russia. A third airfield has come under attack by drones. State-run TASS News Service reported that an oil shortage tank caught fire. The attacks were the furthest penetration yet on Russian soil since the invasion began. Provoking Russian President Putin to raise once again the specter of nuclear war. Putin, however, I think has uh, used this uh, nuclear card an awful lot uh, during these last few months of the war. 
And uh, what he found out from uh, President Xi of China is a warning not to do that. And China took a hard look at the pushback from citizens over its zero COVID policy and decided to back down, at least a bit. It includes measures such as allowing people who get sick to quarantine at home instead of a government facility. They're easing up on testing to get into public spaces, for example. So it's a whole series of micro measures that are being interpreted as another step away from COVID zero by the authorities. Though it may have been encouraged by the dismal trade numbers, even as the United States kept up the pressure on semiconductors by breaking ground for a new plant in Phoenix. These investments are helping us build and strengthen the supply chain here in America. I want to be clear, as we build a stronger supply chain, our allies and partners are building alongside us as well. I'm not sure whether it was all that conflict and confrontation. It may just have been growing concerns over recession, but the markets were not in a risky mood this week, as the S&P 500 lost 3.4% over the week, and the Nasdaq was off almost 4%, while the yield on the 10-year dipped under 3.5 in the middle of the week, but ended up at 3.58% at the end of the week. Let's bring in now Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab, for her view on what we saw this week. Lizanne, great to have you here in New York with us. I am so thrilled to be here. First time back. Back in studio in a couple of years. It's a real treat for us. So uh, give us your take on what we saw this week. Because as I say, there were some indications the markets were getting a little nervous about risk. So I think the the economic data was at least on the margin weaker than expected. PPI obviously came out a bit hotter than expected. And I think that there's just more realization that the, the path from here is to slower growth. Whether we ultimately find it's declared an official recession, as you and I have talked about, I think we're in already a form of recession. It's just of a rolling variety. We've seen the hit to areas like housing, to certain segments within the good side of the economy, the areas that had the, the big surge in the early stage of the pandemic. That was also the breeding ground for the inflation problem we're still dealing with. That then went into recession-type conditions, disinflation in the good side of the economy, housing-related, but we've got the offsetting lift on the services side, which services is a larger employer, so that has kept the labor market afloat. But I think we're going to continue to see weakness roll through the uh, economy. And I think whether it's ultimately declared an official recession is almost an academic uh, exercise at this point. Lizanne, looking back on it, I think it's fair to say we had asset inflation before we had real price inflation for consumers. Uh, has the Fed been successful in pricking the bubble on some of the asset inflation? You mentioned housing, for example. We have cryptocurrencies certainly taken a hit. For that matter, big tech has come down. Are we starting to see some of those asset bubbles at least deflate a bit? Crypto, SPACs, NFTs, um, certain, if not most, pockets of the, the housing market. To your point, big tech, other narrative-driven, speculation-driven areas like heavily shorted stocks, non-profitable, all of those, what, what we've been calling micro-bubbles, undoubtedly have gotten not just pricked, but uh, they sort of popped in spectacular fashion. You know, the, the good news is, is a lot of that speculative excess, even when we were in the, the heights of those bubbles, had not fully filtered over into the traditional market areas. And that's what we were always saying was very distinct from the current environment or the most the recent environment and say 1999-2000 where the speculative excess was concentrated in the major averages. It's been just a little bit outside that mainstream save for some of the 
the big cap tech names. And I think it's just a valuation compression that was necessary in, in large part due to the inflation backdrop. And we are joined now by Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors. Welcome, Peter. Great to have you here with us. Good to be here. So once again, we're seeing rates rise, although not full points every three weeks, but still they're going up, right. probably going to go up again next week. Right. Uh, what does that mean in a broader sense for an investor? I mean, this is a different world than we've seen for several years now. Yeah. Well, look, I think for, if you look at a longer time period, think of it from a strategic point of view, investors have been investing really in equities and very little in fixed income for 15 years. And people have moved away from negative interest rates. They've really, you know, bought private credit. They've bought private assets. They've bought equities, you know, assuming that that's where the return was going to be. So now you have a paradigm shift. And, uh, you know, you can't say, well, this is what I'm going to do with my money tomorrow. But over the next 18 months, you're going to see significant shifts of capital into the fixed income complex. That'll include longer duration securities. That'll include... Uh, high-yield securities, that'll include investment-grade securities, which for the first time will actually be attractive, uh, and it'll include the short-duration uh, complex as well. I also think, interestingly enough, emerging markets has got to be a place where you look. You know, emerging markets are down, the MB is down 20%, maybe 16%, uh, and it's probably got a yield of 8%. Uh, and, to, you know, next year, if everybody's predictions are wrong and the Fed doesn't raise rates by much, because everybody thinks the rates are going to go down, then more than likely you're going to see some recovery in emerging market debt, and that could yield 8% plus some price appreciation to see 10 So, frankly, you know, that's a place where I don't think people are looking, and I think probably it bears some thought. If you take what Peter said, Lizanne, uh, ultimately, does that end you up in cash? Because that's the shortest term investment. You can move that around quickly. And maybe you have to get ready for a bounce back in 18 months. So I think it depends on, on who the investor is. I think for investors that are much less risk tolerant, that if they're, and I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of individual investors, if they're older, if they're in retirement, they were forced way out the risk spectrum in a zero interest rate environment. And for anybody that doesn't have a high risk tolerance, that have those liquidity needs, that have have the need to live off of income, getting a real yield on a cash-like or a very short-term security, that's the first time they've experienced that in, in quite some time. But I also agree with, with Peter. I think there are paradigm shifts that happen when you go through cycles, particularly when you go through a full cycle where you have an economic contraction and you go from a bull market to a bear market into a new bull market. There's always that recency bias. There's always that obsession with looking at what had been the leadership and feeling that there's not going to be momentum in an asset class unless you go back to that leadership. Leadership changes. I think there is opportunity in fixing them. I think there is opportunity international. We, we've got to look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. It's interesting. I just saw a note from Rock Creek, Afsani uh, Beshlas's. Uh, note that said something I hadn't focused on, which is actually one of the winners this year has been Latin America. Mm -hmm. But Latin America has done surprisingly well. I've not been paying any attention to Latin America at all, I must say. Uh, Mostly commodity-driven, oil-driven. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's what was driving that. But look, I, 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 I don't think that we're saying don't invest in equities. Yeah. I just think that the when you look at the where your money is allocated, you're going to start to allocate more money to the fixed income complex. And Pretty much, you're going to go through a period of volatility here where private assets are probably going to have some challenges. Uh, you won't be able to get any liquidity there. You're just going to have to hold them. So you're going to have opportunity losses there. You've seen some of that already in these large 
uh, pools of private assets that have uh, cash withdrawals or cash requirements. And I think you're going to continue to see that as people try to take their liquidity and get 8 to 9%, which they haven't seen for 15 years. Thank you so much to Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors and Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab for being with us on Wall Street Week. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the mood on Wall Street as we head into a bumpy patch. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Real estate. It's the investment people turn to in times of inflation. The real estate market is probably the best major market to invest in right now. Inflation in general is good for real estate. And Rock Creek's Afsane Beshla says they are seeing portfolios shift to real estate as investors turn to private investments in an uncertain time. The bigger thing that is happening in the portfolios we're looking at is obviously a lot of uh, investors, institutional investors who've been also investing in venture, private equity, real estate in private form. And I think that is going to some sort of transformation too. But with interest rates climbing, real estate is becoming trickier. Tom Shapiro of GTIS says the housing market is taking a real hit. The housing market is tremendously decelerating at this point. Sales are off tremendously. Famed investor Sam Zell says it may be worth less than the market thinks. I felt that the real estate market generally has been overpriced, particularly in the, on the private sector. And now Blackstone has limited withdrawals from its massive real estate investment fund because too many people were taking their money out too fast. 
which Larry Summers sees as a potentially ominous sign. When you see prominent financial institutions telling people that they can't take their money out, that's never a happy thing. Makes me wonder about what's ahead. And we welcome back to Wall Street Week now, somebody who knows real estate terribly well. He's Jeff Blau. He's the CEO of Related, and that is, of course, one of the largest real estate developers around the country. They have properties throughout the country, and our, last time I checked, the largest landlord in New York City, I think, Jeff. One-off. I don't know if we're the largest, <laughs> but we're up there. So welcome back. Great to Thank have you. you here. Good to so, be here. So tell us about real estate right now. Uh, it has been a good hedge against inflation. Inflation's a problem. At the same time, interest right. rates are going up, at this, and we have some real problems with some office occupancy. Right. So you've got a lot of topics in there. Uh, first, if you think about what's happened over the last year, we've had the fastest rise in interest rates in, in probably 20 plus years. And the impact on real estate is pretty significant. Now, you break down different parts of real estate because real estate's broad. So on stabilized assets, buildings that people own, whether it's apartment buildings or office buildings, in a, in a way, inflation's good for those assets, right? Rents rise, they go up, and if you did a good job managing your assets, you might have fixed rate long-term debt, so cash flows increase. So in, the, in that bucket of real estate, inflation is, is, a, is a great hedge. Uh, inflation's great for, for real estate assets. Um, if you're in the funds business, uh, whether they're credit funds or equity funds, this is a great time for that business. The banks, as you know, have stopped lending or have certainly pulled back um, significantly. And so the private credit markets are, are booming because where they were competing with the banks in the past, they in effect could make bank type loans at two times the rate. So that's a great opportunity for credit funds, uh, equity funds. We haven't yet seen real distress. We might start seeing that in the, in the next couple of months. So I think the funds management business in real estate is going to be very strong going into 23. The difficult part for real estate is, is anything you want to do new. New development is difficult. There's not a lot of financing. There's not a lot of construction loans. Costs have gone up, um, so it makes it uh, harder to build. Um, so it's, it depends where you are in the real estate markets um, as to what you know, the impact is. Uh, the office sector, as you mentioned, that's, that's a, a whole topic into itself. Um, and I think, really, people, people ask me all the time, tell me about with the office market. And really, the office market is, is very bifurcated, and I don't think there's one answer again. Um, what we have seen is, is a real dispersion in values between older buildings and, and brand new buildings. Um, and it's not just new, it's new with the right features, the right amenities that tenants are looking for today. Um, so we're seeing more and more corporations thinking about how do they get people back to their office and thinking about using the physical space as the attraction to bring people back. But truthfully, people don't want to go back to old, kind of quiet offices that are dark and have bad air circulation and long waits in the elevators and no amenities. So what corporations are doing is investing in their office space, not for occupancy, but for talent attraction and retention. And I think that's where you're really seeing uh, the A buildings and the new buildings that are focused on this, that have the right amenities, that have the right HVAC circulation, that have hospitality type services, that have great air and light, um, and the right type of build out. Uh, the build-out in office space is changing tremendously. Where we used to see kind of the old Mad Max version of a build-out with, you know, private offices on the exterior wall and um, assistance offices or cubes inside, that's really not the way offices is, is built today. We're seeing 
much more collaboration space, teaming space, meeting space, food service, tables around food where people are using for gathering and working as opposed to private offices. So this type of office of the future um, we think can be successful and is successful. The data is there today um, for these new buildings. So we compared brand new buildings across markets in the, in the United States, um, not just here in New York, and you look at new modern buildings with the right features, the right amenities, and the demand for those buildings is tremendous. And at the very same time, you can go a couple blocks, like if you take Hudson Yards, for example, we just opened last, uh, last week, actually our first tenant moved in um, at 50 Hudson Yards. 50 Hudson Yards is a three million square foot building. It cost us over $4 billion to build this building. And, and it's essentially 90 plus percent lease at this point. We're getting the highest rents in New York City in that building, over $200 a foot in that building. And because it is, it has all those features and amenities, right. it is new, it has all those things that right. we're talking about. You can go three blocks away and find as much space as you want yeah. in B buildings that's probably listed for $60, and they can't lease it. Even with everything you say about the A, are people needing a little less A space? I mean, we had the Meta situation actually in right. Hudson Yards, where they right. gave back 250,000 square feet. Are you seeing that more broadly, where people are saying, yes, I really like A, but I don't need as much of it? So not really. So there's a couple different situations. So Meta, um, actually, uh, what Meta did is when we made the deal with them, they are anchor, one of the anchor tenants uh, along with BlackRock in, in 50 Hudson Yards. When we made the deal for them to move into 50 Hudson Yards, that was uh, three plus years ago, four years ago, um, and they needed space immediately. So they took some swing space in 30. Um, with the intent to move into 50. So that's the space that they are not staying in today. Everyone thinks there was this big announcement, but that was, that's, that was the plan. Uh, so they are moving the employees that they have in, in 30 Hudson Yards, which, was, which were in swing space, into 50. Now to answer your question, there are companies like Meta today that are pulling back on office space in general. But that has nothing to do with their build out of the space. That's you know, the tech sector is pulling back, they're cutting costs, that's based on their business, that's based on kind of what's happening in the broader economy. If you, if you ask Meta about their office space per employee in their new types of build outs, and so they have actually stepped back, rethought about the office space of the future, and it's all the things that I talked about. Much uh, fewer private offices, much more gathering and meeting spaces, and when you when you take the same when you take the the same number of employees and compare the old build out and the new build out, the mix of of public space and private space is completely different, but the total square footage per employee is the same. Now, if they ha if they're pulling back because of general economic issues, that's not a real estate issue, yeah. right? It's not an office space issue. Let's come back to the B and C buildings, uh, as we call them. I've read about so-called zombie office buildings now yeah. in New York City, they're really empty. Uh, how bad a problem is that? What are we gonna see, what's the fallout? And by the way, does that also create some opportunities, some bargains to pick things up cheap? Right, so I think it is a, a pretty significant issue for New York City. Uh, you've had some companies leave New York. Um, you've had some companies suffer through the economic downturn and COVID and supply chain and all the things that have happened um, and have vacated space in those B buildings. Um, the problem is uh, there's, not a, there's not a lot of tenants that want to release those spaces. So uh, we're seeing 
uh, vacancy in the B buildings increased significantly. We're seeing the vacancy in the not just A buildings, but in new product A buildings. Jeff, thank you so much. Jeff Blog, he's CEO of Related. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we welcome back now our special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, normally we talk about what's happened during the week, particularly what the Fed might make of it, what might happen with rates. But it strikes me there isn't a lot of that this week. Let's talk about larger issues that really you are focused on. David, I think it's important for us always to remember that ultimately trends are more important than events. And trends, most of the time, are positive, And events, most of the time, are negative. So we have to step back and look at things that may be markers of trends. And I saw two such things uh, this week. China's huge evolution away from the zero COVID strategy and what happened with ChatGPT from OpenAI, which may be a marker of a profound change in what it means to be a machine and what it means to be human. 
So let's take each of those up in turn, if we could, Larry. Let's start with China, because as you say, they really are backing off of their strict policy on COVID and the isolation and the, that they've been pursuing, and also a lot of the testing. But do we know yet whether that's going to be positive or negative? It could be positive for the economy, but on the other hand, if they have a real spike in cases and really overload their medical system, we may have a problem. Look, I, I think we know two things. We know that a big change in China happened because of an expression of popular will and protests. That's a profound thing for the governance of that superpower with 1.4 billion people. You're quite right, we don't yet know how this is going to work out. Is this going to be a successful rejoining of the reality of the rest of the world? Or is this gonna lead to catastrophic, delegitimizing performance of the Chinese healthcare system? And we don't know. But either way, there's a big chance that China's gonna be a quite different country six months from now than it is today. And so I think all of us are always watching China carefully, but we need to be watching China much more carefully over the next, uh, over the next six months when you're gonna be seeing leadership uh, change at the same, below the level of Xi Jinping, of course, at the same time that we're gonna be seeing probably the uh, biggest uh, set of policy experiments uh, that we've seen in China in decades. So let's turn to that second subject, the open AI creation of chat GPT. I won't pretend that I understand this, but I have read about it. Again, is this a positive thing or potentially a negative thing? Because we already have a lot on the internet. We don't know where it comes from or its origins. Now we're going to have something that uh, we can't even tell whether a person created it. Look, when I went to graduate school, we used to estimate statistical models with five parameters. Now they're gonna be 175 billion parameters that go into uh, one of these uh, systems. The great computer scientist, Alan Turing, 70 years ago, said that it was going to be a threshold for humanity when a machine could, could, could imitate a human being's answers to questions in a way where another human being wouldn't be able to tell the difference. We're somewhere in the territory of that right now, and that is a profound thing for humanity. It points to a profound change in the way we're all going to be working. We're all gonna have a kind of caddy that, or many of us are gonna have a kind of caddy that is going to augment our creativity, augment our capacities to bring knowledge to bear on uh, what we do, augment our accuracy. But just as the printing press or electricity was a huge change because it was a general purpose technology, this could be the most important general purpose technology since the wheel or fire. And that is something we are all going to be uh, changed by. My hope is that the very transcendence of these kinds of events can bring a kind of unity, 
can bring a kind of unity because they are so large relative to the differences between Democrats and Republicans or even the difference between the West and uh, China that these opportunities and threats because they are uh, both, whether it's microbes, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's uh, climate change, that the very transcendence of these global events can become a source of cohesion and progress. But there is no assurance at all of that. We are living in truly historic times. Uh, Larry, I want to talk about a different sort of threshold that I came across this week, and I was a little bit surprised. I was reading Bono, the leader of U2, his new memoir called Surrender. Uh, it's a fascinating book. I find it very, very compelling. And who do I find in there but one Larry Summers, when you were, according to Bono, a reasonably new Treasury Secretary. And he came in to meet with you and Sheryl Sandberg and Stephanie Flanders to talk about debt forgiveness for the poorest countries. And according to his rendition of it, it really started, you started with President Clinton, a real process that led to really historic changes in the debt of some of the poorest countries in the world. What about that? We've still got a long way to go, don't we? David, uh, Bono is an unlikely but very close friend. I will confess it, I'd never heard of him before we had our meeting. And Sheryl Sandberg had to force me uh, to take the meeting because I thought secretaries of the Treasury should only meet with people who had a first name and a last name. But he was mesmerizing both in his charisma and his knowledge. And he drove that debt relief program uh, forward. Uh, we had an unlikely coalition, Pat Robertson, Senator Jesse Helms, and we were able to do something that I think was hugely important for the African continent at that time. Sad to say, right now the world needs comprehensive uh, debt relief for the poorest countries. And what the world is getting is grudging, incremental, partial, limited, small efforts. And we've got to find a way to do uh, better. And I hope Bono's going to get the band uh, together again. I'm certainly willing to do my part uh, to help. This time it's going to be different because a lot of that debt is owed to China. And finding a way, even when things are vexed with China, to involve them in helping these countries uh, move forward uh, based on an understanding of how they see uh, the issue is going to be uh, necessary and profoundly important for a large number of human lives. And finally, Larry, give us a moment, if you would, on what we normally do on this program, which is talk about what happens this week, and specifically the question of the likelihood of a recession. We saw developments in the marketplace, oil price coming down, bond yields coming down, stocks coming down. Most people think that has to do with real anticipation of a significant recession. Where are you on that? I've been, I've been saying uh, soft landing very unlikely for a while, and I think it's looking even more unlikely uh, right now. I noticed uh, that the consensus, as reflected by the FT University of Chicago survey of a 
group of 50 economists is now moving closer to where I've been. They're saying that we're going to have a recession and that the unemployment rate will peak at 5.5%. That's up from where they were, way ahead of where the Fed is. I've been saying 6%. So I think there's a growing coming together that we probably are going to make more progress on inflation than many people expected. But it's because the Fed is going to do what's necessary. But there's likely to be uh, some adverse uh, aspect uh, of that. But, you know, David, next week, I hope we can talk about what's happening globally, because we tend to focus here just on the American picture. But the two other major poles of the economy, China and Europe, are both going to have a huge impact on how this all plays out globally. Let's do exactly that next week. Thank you so much to Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, to the winners go the spoils, or at least to the big-time pro baseball players. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Bloomberg Wall Street reporter Shanali Bassett got a ringside seat at the Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Services Conference in New York this week. And this is what she learned about the mood on Wall Street. Thanks, David. When it comes to the mood on Wall Street, a lot of the energy has been focused on talent. Talent is often the biggest cost, and for all the talk of potential job cuts and reductions in pay, it's worth taking a look at which jobs are under pressure, which are not, and how employees can adjust to new positions as they try to realign to a new macroeconomic environment. Now, bankers are looking to reinvent themselves. Investment banking at Bank of America is on track to drop by more than 50% this year, for example. And that bank has actually gained market share in mergers and acquisitions and investment grade underwriting during this week market. CEO Brian Moynihan said the company is slowing hiring ahead of a possible recession, but he's also said they're trying to move traditional deal makers to new roles within the bank. He spoke to me at the annual Goldman Sachs Financial Services Conference this week. We know we can absorb those teammates we, 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 by just manage our account carefully. So what do we do in a times like this? You look at your open positions, you look at your uh, fill rate, which is how many people hire as a percentage of people leave, and you, and you shape the headcount back in across the whole company. We take some of the talent, teammates, investment banking, and bring them into other parts of the company in times like this. Finally, one more thought. Maybe we're not really all in this together. Just about everyone, at least every economist, agrees that we are in for some harder economic times. And that includes former presidential economic advisor Glenn Hubbard of Columbia. I think it's still likely that we will see a recession if the Federal Reserve pursues its path to get to 2% inflation relatively quickly. But to say that we are all facing an economic downturn does not mean that we will all take the same hit from that downturn. Some of us will get laid off, which Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says is necessary and could actually be a good sign for investors. When that layoff cycle picks up in earnest, that will actually be one of the keys for us to get bullish because that means the bleeding will stop on the operating leverage. One of the first group of workers to get hit has been tech, particularly big tech, which in some cases may have been overdue. The hiring that we saw through the pandemic, where companies like Amazon and Meta basically doubled the workforce, right. clearly there's some excess there that needs to unwind. A thought echoed by Fortero's Dean Forbes. Most of these layoffs at scale are happening in the supers, right? They're happening in the metas, they're happening in the Facebooks, they're happening in Twitter. 
and to a degree it's just kind of right-sizing. Even if we're not losing our jobs, most of us are finding that we make less because of the bite of inflation. And now Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon says that at least some of his bankers should expect cuts in compensation over and above what inflation is doing. It shouldn't be surprising to people watching the performance of the business this year that 2021 was an exceptional year. It was a record year for the firm. It was the highest revenue year ever for the firm. 2022 is a different year, and so naturally, compensation will be lower. But never fear, those layoffs and comp cuts won't be reaching all workers, not by a long shot, and certainly not if you are a star pro baseball player. Just last week, the Texas Rangers took two-time Cy Young Award winner Jacob deGrom away from the New York Mets, and in the process gave him a nice raise to $37 million a year. But the Mets didn't grieve for too long. They turned around inside Justin Verlander, raising his pay to a cool $43 million a year, putting him just about on a par with his Mets teammate now, Max Scherzer. But then we had the Yankees step up with $360 million over nine years to keep star slugger Aaron Judge in pinstripes. $360 million deal for nine years with the Yankees, that being reported by The Athletic, $40 million a year. And I'm sorry, Lisa, it's just simple. Sports wins. The fact is, you see it in the signing season of baseball, big money is being thrown around. Now, nobody can deny that all of these are truly great players, sure to make it into the Hall of Fame. But to put it all in a broader perspective, Mickey Mantle, surely one of the greatest players ever in the game, became the highest paid baseball player in the land back in 1963. And what did he get paid? A whopping $100,000 a year. And that is just over 2% of what Justin Verlander will make next year. And yes, that is adjusted for inflation. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.